This dude is a red shirt freshman. A red shirt freshman. I mean, a red shirt freshman. Red shirt freshman. Welcome to Donuts with Dudes, episode 15. It's August 14th, baby. We got a great lineup for you guys this week. For our first topic, Anthony and I are unpacking the Johnny Football documentary that just dropped on Netflix. It's Johnny Football, baby. For our second topic this week, we got a billionaire brawl on our hands. Man, these two dudes just been thumb wrestling lately. And for our final topic, American credit card debt just hit one trillion dollars. One million dollars. And stick around for the second half of our show as Cameron and I had a great conversation with sports writer and Heisman voter Olin Buchanan from Texas as he reminisces on Johnny Football's magical 2012 year. But before we throw this batch in the oven, Anthony, hit him with that great intro song, my dude. Let's get it. Welcome to Donuts with Dudes, where we dive into the things that matter most to men, like sports, business, and mental conditioning. But we don't stop there. We also incorporate health topics, because being a well-rounded dude means taking care of yourself. We're your hosts, Anthony and Cameron, and we're excited to bring you this show, where we discuss hot topics and interview experts in their field, real dudes just like you. So sit back, grab a donut, and maybe some coffee, and join us in the bakery. Dudes, for our first topic this week, if you have a subscription to Netflix, you've probably seen the untold story of Johnny Football come across your screen. And if you're like most of us, you probably caught it. And before Anthony and I jump into the topic of Johnny Football, the greatness in the magical year of 2012, and then the great decline and the fall off of Johnny Football, we want to hit you with this track. Let's get it. Johnny Football's a redshirt freshman, and this is his team. His team. That's a bad boy. Texas A&M, like I told you, Johnny Football is nothing to play with. He's not a kid. I just don't know how to stop him. Oh, he's a quarterback, and he's a lead rusher in the SEC. This dude is a red shirt freshman. A red shirt freshman. I mean, a red shirt freshman. Red shirt freshman. You're a red shirt freshman. Ah, uh, memories, bro. Memories, memories. Hey, man, shout out to our boy SA Partner out of uh, BCS Aggieland for that. Uh, for that song, man. That was that. That's timeless. You know, sure was. It was. It was a hot beat back in 2012 when Johnny was hot and. Didn't get a lot of credit, but I love the way that he used <laughs> Stephen A. Smith and other people talking about him. It was just, that's a good mashup right there, man. Shout out to Blake. I'm almost positive, too, that somewhere I had seen a reaction from Stephen A. Smith on this song, and he was like, man, I hate that song. <laughs> <laughs> Even though it's using, you know, he was he was talking positively about Johnny Manziel. But whatever is he? I, I don't normally agree with a lot of Stephen A. Smith, but. Anyway, we're here to talk about the documentary, the untold story, Johnny Menzel, Johnny Football. You know, 
the story of Johnny Football for me, maybe I'm biased. Dudes, if you guys don't know, Anthony and I both did go to Texas A&M. And so we have our own experience with it. But I think in my in my mind, this story affects affects everybody in some kind of way because everybody knows who Johnny Menzel is or Johnny Football, right? Love him, hate him, right, wrong, or indifferent, you know something about Johnny Football. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, I feel like some people, you know, they're, they're always going to be haters anyways, man. So either you, you loved him or you hated him. And that's why he was polarizing. But at the same time, man, the documentary, I feel like, really wasn't asking for your opinion. It was kind of just showing, hey, this is what this guy was actually going through. Uh, love it or hate it, it, it didn't really matter. This is what he was going through. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, that's something that before we unpack it that I can appreciate about Johnny Manziel in this story is his candidness, his openness. I think that that kind of stuff shows maturity. And I think that it shows a different side of Johnny that a lot of people don't know about, you know, that have never really seen from Johnny, you know, and it seems sincere, but he was also unapologetic about who he is, right? And, you know, him being diagnosed with bipolar disorder and, you know, this is who I am. And, you know, him actually smoking weed in, in the documentary and, and drinking a beer, which is what the biggest contention with Johnny Manziel is in the public eye, is his relationship with drugs and alcohol. But in the story, it's just like, you know what, like, I'm willing to open up to who I am and this is raw, who I am, this is me. And I can appreciate him being courageous in that, to being able to do that. Yeah, I agree with you, man. I, I don't think that, uh, I wasn't looking for an apology. No. You know, ever. Like, uh, I just was uh, more interested in, in reliving that time period, man, because I can just remember, you know, my son, I think he was a year, a year old and we were just hundred percent in on Johnny football, man. We we're, you know, when he started coming out, we we're like, Hey, look, this is our year. Yeah. You know, my, my experience is a little bit different, man. I was in grad school at that time and I was actually working at a bar in Northgate at that point in time. And so I can remember the time that Johnny was starting quarterback coming out to Northgate him just got really just almost being accessible. Hey, what's up? I even, I remember the night that he came out in the Scooby-Doo outfit. Mm. And there's a picture with a girl that's actually in front of my bar, the social lounge, which I was a manager of at that time. And he's in that Scooby-Doo outfit. And I remember him walking in right after that. However, that was a point in time prior to him being in the Heisman talk. You know, it was like, cool, he's, the, he's our starting quarterback of, of Aggie football, which is always cool, right? being an Aggie fan, but it was, you know, it was after a few games, man, we had this, this dude, Nate, I remember him coming up to the front door and being like, Hey man, Johnny wants to come into the club tonight, man. Uh, we've got 10 people or whatever with us. Is it cool? I'm going to get him around the back or something like that. And that happened twice with me with getting Johnny Manziel into the club. And that was after and around right, right before the Alabama game, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Good old uncle Nate, man. I'm glad he, uh, he had his feature in this documentary yeah. because, you know, that dude was his uh, right-hand man, especially in behind the scenes on everything. So before um, before the whole Heisman thing, that that was the guy. Like, you went to, when Johnny started on his rise, man, you went to Uncle Nate. So Uncle Nate, man. Shout out to Uncle Nate, bro. Shout out, man. You know, what's interesting to me is, you know, when they got to the part of the documentary where 
it was the Heisman portion. And I was started thinking about this. They showed Manti Teo. And I'm like, man, they just did two untold stories back to back on this 2012 Heisman class. You know, uh, <laughs> and, and it, like that whole entire year was just full of with stories, man. You know, except for the Klein guy, because that guy, he just fell off. I mean, I don't even you know whenever it's funny when I saw those three on, you know, when they're talking about the Heisman thing, I was like, who the heck, who the heck is Colin Klein? I, for, I totally forgot about that guy because he was not a main story in that because you had the whole what the catfish scandal with with Manti Teo and the fake girlfriend and all that, which. That's even a, a wild thing too, man. But the, the better player won. Yeah, I remember I was like Chris Klein. Okay, I guess he's just, no no disrespect to Chris Klein. Uh, I just remember being in that moment, like, and I think a lot of people were like, everybody knows who it was. Chris Klein or Colin Klein? Colin Klein. Oh, oh, there we go. See, we don't even know the guy's name, bro. <laughs> no disrespect to you, Chris Colin Klein, my bad man. But you know, it, it just there was. I felt like there was just an obvious winner in in Johnny that year. You know, but obviously there was a big, big fall off. And, and that was that point in time that I remember where I was just like, man, like you don't see Johnny anymore. You don't see him around in College Station. And, you know, that's where you start seeing his life just start turning for the worse, especially when it comes to mental, emotional issues that he that he started dealing with. And man, you know, the funniest part to me is the whole grandpa story and him trying to like launder money through his grandpa's account and oh, yeah. trying to get him to write the check. And they don't interview the grandpa throughout the whole entire story. And all you see of the grandpa is him just going, ha ha ha. <laughs> you know that grandpa's a G. <laughs> oh yeah, man. Hey. Grandpa Manziel, where are you at? Being here present in Aggieland whenever that whole season was going on, you know, we saw everything that they talked about whenever you're seeing the highlights and you're seeing everything on the headlines. But, and we, we kind of had some sort of knowledge about some of the, the darker parts of the story, but, you know, we didn't really know for sure until this documentary came out and, you know, Hey man, that shows some vulnerability and just showing his, his honesty. And, and man, I can appreciate that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I can 100% appreciate somebody coming out, admitting fault, owning up to it, and still being okay with being on his on his journey too as well. You can tell he's not where he wants to be. I think even his sister referred to him not being where he wants to be yet. But you know what? I'm still on this journey and I'm better than I was and that's okay. And I can respect a man that's in pursuit of that. But you have to wonder, and I'm going to play a little devil's advocate here. You know, he played this this story on about himself, right? That he was this, you know, mega millionaire, came from a bunch of oil money. And, you know, that's where all this money came from, the cars, all you know, everything, the, the private jets, things like that. And he fabricated a lot of this story. What's to say that this isn't just a marketing ploy for his brand to just come out make a story about himself. I mean, and the same for anybody that comes out and does anything like this, right? I mean, anti tale anybody else that's done an untold story. But how much can we believe that this is 100% fact and how much is fabricated for a great documentary, in my opinion, on Netflix? No, you're right on that point too, man, because I was thinking about it whenever, you know, they're interviewing the agent, the agent in, uh, in the documentary and he's like, you know, he's talking about just the crazy stuff that they had to just uh, overcome or like last minute improvisations of 
oh crap, we got this media event or we've got this, what can we do here? And that just shows some creativity, but it also kind of markets themselves too, being like, hey, guess what? You got problems, man, we could help you. You know, I, it's not just us either, man. I think you go and look at people like Pat McPhee. He came out last week on his show talking about Johnny Menzel and how he hasn't watched the documentary yet because he loved Johnny Menzel. Everybody fell in love with the 2012 Johnny Menzel. And then you go through these next few years of just having your heart ripped out and then coming back from rehab and thinking like, oh, this dude's like, he's got to turn it around. And then he just goes off the deep end again. And I think if you've seen the documentary, I don't want to really, this spoil alert, well, this is a spoil alert. You know, he talks about, that's where he talks about going into ending his life and all that. But for, you know, people like Pat McPhee, it's not wanting to watch the demise of what was Johnny Menzel because there is this mystique, there is this legend that lives on in people's minds that sometimes wants to ignore the bad parts and the bad story of Johnny Menzel. But I think there's a lot of people that probably have this type of relationship with the epic of Johnny football. I mean, he he revived Aggie football, bro. I mean, let's be real with it. I mean, this dude, you know, ignited this fire that propelled us in the SEC, built a new stadium, and then um, ultimately, man, brought some high recruits here. And it's the rest is history. I mean, it's actually still being written. So let's 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 focus on the positive things that Johnny brought to Aggie football. And dudes, we would we'd love to hear your take on the documentary. We'd love to also hear about your experience that you had during the time that Johnny Football was at his peak and, and during his decline and just the story of Johnny Football. We have a link in our show notes where you can drop those stories that'll take you to our website. You can also request a shout out there too as well, or you can email us info at donutswithdudes.com. And dudes, for our second topic this week, man, we got the billionaire brawl about to go down. There's a projected date, August 26th. If you guys don't know, that is my birthday. And this would be the greatest thing to see go down. But this billionaire brawl, this text message battle has been going on between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerbergler, as we like to call him around here. They're talking about who would win in a cage match. Man, this is just kind of some of the craziest stuff. And it all started with Mark Zuckerbergler releasing his new app, Threads, which is the rival to the former Twitter app, now called X. You're absolutely right, brother. And you know what? What's even funnier is that you got two guys that if you were to probably see them in a room, you, you wouldn't even pick on these guys, right? But you've got two of these top tech moguls, you know, billionaires, whatever you want to call them, and uh, they're going... They're going head to head. They both got Twitter fingers and they're just, uh, you know, they're battling it out via the app. But one thing I really think is kind of funny is Dana White's somehow getting in the middle of this and um, he's predicting that the fight would do one billion in revenue. Man, I mean, obviously, if we got two billionaires hashing it out, you would think hopefully it's going to bring in at least a billion in revenue. I know I would pay. I don't pay for pay-per-view. I, I don't do that, man. I find other ways to watch fights. Maybe if it's not live action, unless it's a really big fight, Mayweather coming out of retirement, something like that. This fight right here, I would definitely pay money to watch. I would definitely pay the the fifty to a hundred bucks to to get a, a pay per view 
match of Elon Musk and, and Zuckerbergler. And actually, they've already created a line for this in Vegas right now, man. So, dudes, get this. Right now, we've got Elon Musk, who is 52 years old. And the line, as of Tuesday of last week, Musk was installed in the fight at, at a plus 350. On the contrary, the book also had Zuckerbergler at negative 500 as a favorite for the fight. However, what's really interesting is that if you look at 94% of the bets right now, they're all backing Musk. It just seems like he's the fan favorite, man. I mean, if you're really looking at two guys and, uh, you know, their business practices, uh, Zuckerbergler is a thief, man. So nobody wants to support some dude like that. I mean, I don't. You know what? I'm actually probably going to bootleg that fight because I don't want him making any money off of me anymore. <laughs> Did you watch the Nate Diaz and, uh, and uh, Jake Paul fight? I did not. No, I didn't. I I was this close to buying it, but then I said, you know what? Uh, We ended up going to see a movie. We went and saw uh, Meg 2, and that was a great movie, a good family time, but when I got home, I I got to skip all the pre-fights and um, got on TikTok and watched that thing for free, man, and I enjoyed every minute of it. It didn't cost me a thing, bro. There you go. Man, I I tell you what, it'd be really interesting to watch this and again, what they're projecting right now is that the fight would happen on August 26th. That's a Saturday. So I'm hoping that we can get this to happen. We got a match going on between Zuckerbergler and Musk on Twitter. They're, they're kind of hashing it out. Zuckerbergler's saying that he's ready today. And Musk is responding back and saying that he's, well, I got this thing going on in my neck and I got to get that checked out before we hop in there. But I'm just interested. What's your take on all this, man? Who are you picking for the fight? Hey, I, I think I would actually pick. I, I don't know, man. I think I'd probably go with Musk. But, you know, what's funny here is I was just reading on this site here, in it, uh, the MMAfighting.com, and it said uh, that both guys would uh, have to take drug tests prior to the fight. So this also brings a question. Is Musk trying to pull a matrix on us and, like, download some programs via Neuralink so that way this dude is just this uh, combat king? You know what I mean? Like... I don't know. I think it'd be funny to see. I wouldn't put it past the dude, man. I mean, guy's probably one of the smartest human beings that's ever been on this planet, man. And so he's definitely going to try to use his brain some way in this fight. I mean, if you take a look at the guy over the years, I think Elon Musk has definitely gotten into better shape. With that being said, I think Mark Zuckerbergler is actually really ready for the fight today. I mean, the guy has actually been training with a jiu-jitsu master for um, learning MMA and I mean, Zuckerbergler, right? Z- yeah, Zuckerbergler, always. Yeah, Zuckerbergler. But as I'm reading right now, it even says uh, Elon grew up as a judo guy. I don't know, man. I'm uh, now I'm, the more I read, the more I'm interested I am. I'm still not gonna spend a penny on it, but I'll watch it at your house. <laughs> yeah, man. Now I gotta put my money where my mouth is, huh? Yeah, man. Yeah, I, I had no idea that he was he was into judo, but I'll tell you this. If you look at the two guys next to each other right now, Zuckerbergler definitely looks more fight-ready than Elon Musk. I think we did it today. As much as I don't like to admit it, I think Mark could probably run some circles around Elon, catch him one time. I just don't see Elon as a very agile fighting. You got to be kind of graceful and you got to be got to be quick. You got to be agile. And I just don't see him being those things. But Hey, he may turn into something different. I mean, I've seen people turn into different people when a fight breaks out, but 
Who knows? Dana White said, though, you know, this would be the huge fight. And the only one fight that would even be bigger than this would be Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. Now I'd pay to see that, too, as well. <laughs> I'd probably pay to buy that. Yeah, I'd buy, I'd buy that for sure. That's definitely a billion dollar sellout right there for sure. But it'll never happen. Yeah. I mean, the Donald Trump one will never happen. Yeah. But I, I, you know what, man? I'm going to remain hopeful that we might be able to see something going on between Musk and Zuckerberg. They'll probably have no head blows. They'll probably have all kinds of different pads on. And it probably won't even, it'll probably be more comedic and hilarious than it will be an actual fight. Oh, that wouldn't. Yeah. I'm out. I'm out. Yeah. I'll watch it at your house. <laughs> Dudes, what do you guys think about this topic? Mm. Would you guys be interested in watching an Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg fight? I know I would. We'll get a link in our show notes. Let us know what you guys think. Or you can email us, info at donutswithdudes.com. And dudes, for our final story this week, the topic Anthony and I wanted to pick up, credit card debt in the U.S. just reached a staggering record high, topping $1 trillion for the first time. And according to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, millions of credit card holders are carrying balances month after month, year after year. And this is something that's a little bit unprecedented, man. On top of that, you have America sitting at over $32 trillion in national debt. So so $32 trillion uh, in, in U.S. debt, however, the population or the citizens are only $1 trillion? account for one trillion of that is that correct so the one trillion is just in credit card debt the rest of it is accumulated of what the the government holds in like bonds and things like that the bonds that, that they sell to raise money and capital for the government there's also other debt too as well i mean there's not just credit card debt like revolving door debt you also have loans too as well like mortgages that also goes into account not of this one trillion dollar number but the 32 trillion dollar number back to my point here on this is you think americans are going to want to use credit cards if they don't have to you're right i mean with with inflation and all that uh you know it's pushed the american consumer into having to to use more credit because you're not able to pick up the tab with wages not being able to go with with inflation and such yeah man it's all it's all the system and you know that's another topic for another you know Another discussion for another topic on another day, because uh, you know I, I have my own thoughts on this. But man, you know what? I just say let's uh, let's just uh, boycott paying credit cards, dude. I mean, what are they going to do? Something's got to give, man. And uh, hurt, hurt your credit score. I mean, guess what? Yeah, this this imaginary number. I mean, guess what? If you're not trying to buy a car or buy a house or do anything else that needs credit, just hey, just don't pay it. Just don't pay it. <laughs> hey. Hey, let's put a petition up, bro. Hey, we're just going to stop paying credit card debt. Put those, you know, those businesses and those credit, those creditors out of business. And, uh, you know, there's bigger things going on, man. You've seen the, uh, the aliens in Peru right now. You think those guys are worrying about credit cards right now? (laughs) I'm telling you, man, we got green folks coming in from outer space and we're talking about debt. The world, the world's over. Right. I mean. It could be worse. <laughs> it really could be worse, man. But the average household holds on to about $244,000 of debt. 
And that equates to about $96,000 per person. It's the American dream, dude. Man. Go get your house. Oh, the government. Go get your car. Oh, the government. If, if we don't know this by now, it's uh, it's economics, bro. It's part of it, right? You know, this year has kind of been one in for the headlines with the crypto crash. You got the failing of the financial system with the banks here in America. You got the fallout of Credit Suisse, too, in Switzerland. Just, I feel like it's a dial-up for a disaster. But at the same time, man, I mean, somehow we keep rolling on and, and keep rolling strong in the economy. I mean, look at the stock market. Uh, look at things like that, indicators like that, that are, you know, important. They're showing for a strong forecast, man. Everything for us, uh, for the citizens, man, is based on debt. Student loans, credit cards, house, car, you name it, man. It's like, hey, I'm going to loan you something and I want more than what I'm loaning you back. And I hope you can pay for it. And in the meantime, we're going to make things real difficult for you to even make men's meet sometimes. You know what I mean? So it's like, really, I think they need to go back to school, you know, in high school and stuff like that. They really kind of need to teach Americans on how to manage debt and, and what it, that looks like, what the struggles can be if you uh, if you don't. Absolutely. You know, you're, you're throwing a credit card at you right when you're 18, you get your first taste of money. And it's a recipe for disasters. You know, I mean, there there is a bad debt problem in this, not just in consumer debt, not just in student loan debt, but just debt, period. You know, so dudes, we wanted to share with you just a few ways as to how you can go about tackling your debt in a healthy and safe way. There's obviously a lot of mechanisms out there. You probably have heard of the Dave Ramseys of the world. And have probably seen a lot of different financial advice. But we definitely want to disclaimer this with you that we are not financial professionals. But first tip is call and ask your card issuer for a lower rate. Sometimes you just have to ask the hard question and see if you get a yes out of it. And being okay with hearing the answer no, right? So get on the phone, call your creditors, let them know what's, what's going on with you. And seeing how you can get your interest rate cut and see if you can get your monthly payments dropped down. Also, see if you can snag a zero interest balance transfer card to try to take away from some of the accruing interest that's on some of your high interest debt. But you have to be careful with that. You have to make a plan to make sure that you're going to pay that off in the amount of time that you've got allotted for that zero interest trial period. And lastly, pick up a strategy. Get it mapped out. Get it out on a spreadsheet. However you got to do it, find a system and pay it down. Pay down the debt. Dave Ramsey, as everybody knows, has the snowball effect of paying off your lowest and then rolling that payment into the next one and so on and so forth. That's a method that could work. I don't think it matters so much about what method you decide to do, but it's finding one, sticking to it, and sticking to a plan and making sure that you're attacking it. I like the way Dave Ramsey says it, attacking it with gazelle intensity and making sure you get out from under your debt. Dudes, what do you guys think about this? Is debt giving you a crunch right now? Drop us a line in our show notes or email us info at donutswithdudes.com. We'll be back in a minute, but now a word from our sponsors. At some point in our adult lives, we may have to turn our attention to the needs and safety of our parents and grandparents as they age. They've done so much for us, and it's our turn to make sure they have the best quality of life. I founded HomeSmart because seniors deserve to have the very best care available so they can age with dignity and remain independent longer. 
Our caregivers provide wellness checks, companionship, transportation, meal preparation, and more of what you think is important. To learn more about our personalized care plan, visit us at homesparkcare.com. Homespark, we care for people. Well, dudes, we got an esteemed guest with us in the bakery today. His name is Olin Buchanan, and he is a sports writer for Tex Ags, which covers Texas A&M sports. He's been a sports writer for over 42 years. So, dudes, help me welcome Olin Buchanan to the bakery. (laughs) Welcome to the bakery, brother. Thank you. Glad to be here. (laughs) I'm a little bit on stage right and all that. Talk in front of all these, uh, all your uh, your audience there. But. Yeah, man. Well, we appreciate you joining us today. Obviously, in light of what's going on in in the Netflix realm, right? I mean, I think if anybody has a Netflix subscription, that you probably have caught or at least seen the Johnny Football Untold Story documentary. But Olin, you know, I know that you've been covering Aggie sports since 2012, correct? Actually, even before that. But for Tech Tech, 2012, I worked for the Eagle for a couple of years, and then I covered A&M football for the Austin American State for years. So I've been around that program for a while. There you go. So, Olin, that's what I love about you, man, is because not only do you write about Aggie sports, but I think you can also bring an objective point of view because you also worked for the dark side a little bit before you got into <laughs> <laughs> working for Aggie Sports. But being in that environment in 2012, obviously that that year was the inaugural year for Texas A&M going into the SEC. That was also a very big year because of Johnny Football, not just for Texas A&M sports, but for just college football and I guess the experience that came around it. I mean, everybody knows about Johnny football, but what I want to talk to you about before we jump into uh, covering Johnny, can you share your experience covering Aggie football and, and what it was like that year? Well, it was magic. Uh, it was like, uh, yeah, that team was so good. And Johnny was this guy played football like he was on a, uh, a high wire. You know, you're always thinking, oh, gosh, he's always teetering on the edge of disaster, and yet he always, uh, you know, he always uh, found a way not to fall, and, and and everything almost always turned out great. But, you know, he had Swole, Ryan Swole, Mike Evans, and three eventual first-round draft choices on the offensive line. They just had so much talent. but. Uh, but when you paired the, all those guys with Johnny, that was again just so magical and so uh, he just grabbed your imagination. He, he was must see TV. He made Texas A&M cool for a couple of years, and uh, A&M needed that. They needed a kind of a, a change in uh, the perception of the program nationally, uh, and he brought that. So uh, it was. It was you're watching Texas A and M, but it was after you know the Mike Sherman years and the Dennis Francione years, uh, and even the end of the RC Slocum regime. It was like, yeah, it's Texas A and M, but the colors are the same, the, the mascots the same. They still got this pretty collie running around on the sideline, but this is a whole different deal. This is like, uh, you know, uh, uh, just a whole change in persona, and it was. 
it was it was fun. Like I said, Texas A and M was a cool place to be for a couple of years. Yeah, it definitely. You know, being from Bryan College Station, I always felt like Texas A and M was always under the spotlight of of UT, and especially when it came to media. And I think for the first time in my lifetime. A&M was the, the, the spectacle, especially for Texas sports, but not only for that, it went on a, on a national scale, right? I mean, it, it completely changed the, the whole entire thing. And so I'm curious, how do you think the documentary portrays the, the experience of Johnny Manziel and his time here at Texas A&M? Well, uh, yeah, I think it, 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 it uh, gives you a, a kind of look at the tip of the iceberg. Because uh, it really went for so much of Johnny's personal demons, I guess. But uh, the only the only criticism I would have really is that I would have liked to see more about that season and why he won the highest trophy. And because if you act like a, a crazy guy off the field, uh, then you're just a just a bozo unless you're playing great too. So it was almost this perfect storm of playing or I think that's not the right way to put it, but this guy who's it's almost like the the guy lived the lifestyle like he played and he played like he lived the lifestyle. Uh, Again, teetering on the edge of destruction while he played. The difference was he actually fell off that high wire when you were the, uh, you know, uh, in his personal life. But I would we all knew that. We all knew how that ended. But I would have liked to have seen more about just how amazing that year was. Because they showed a lot of the Alabama game. But Johnny was already on the Heisman radar before that Alabama game, and there were so many big moments uh, before that that just would have further illustrated if Grant didn't live it uh, you know, 10 years ago, 11 years ago. If he weren't there to live it or see it every day, um, it just further illustrate just how spectacular he was and how spectacular that season was. And that's the reason why uh, he became such the focus of, of, or got the attention of the nation, because first of all, it was was the way he played, and and, and the things he was playing, in the SEC, they were moving to the SEC, and they were supposed to be the, you know, just be glad to to be there, you know, bend over, we'll spank you, say, out of my house, thank you, sir. May I have another? Uh, but because of Johnny Man, yeah. But because of Johnny Manziel, it wasn't that way at all. No, and I appreciate you bringing that up because that that just kind of jumps right into this next question. Like, were there any special key moments or you know memories that you have of that journey that he had to the Heisman that just wasn't wasn't documented in there? Like, can you give us maybe a few key examples that what stood out to you? Well, I don't know about the things that weren't documented, but like, okay, the first game against Florida. Now, um, I remember coming away from that, 
and remember, you, I, I know you guys probably remember, they were leaving at halftime and let him get away, and that was somewhat concerning to a lot of Aggies because the year before A&M had led at halftime by getting six games and lost them all. Um, and some were saying, hey, here we go, same old stuff. And I'm sitting up there in the Alto press box going, no, I know they let this one get away, but this is different. And then the next week at SMU, he's spectacular, and there's the evidence at SMU. And then the, the, the way he played against Arkansas, but I think where, where I think he really became a Heisman contender was the game at Ole Miss where he actually didn't play that well until the fourth quarter. And then here's this game that looks all but lost, and he's almost sacked for a, a, a safety that probably would have ended the game, just barely gets out of the end zone, and then the next play uh, completes a like 35-yard pass to Mike Evans on the sideline. And two plays later, they, get, they score a touchdown, and the next thing you know, they're pulling out the win that looked like it was completely hopeless. And you know, I would have liked to have seen more of those spectacular plays that 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 just further illustrated how great a football player he was and why it was such a you know, an amazing time. Because again, I mean, here's a guy that uh, that there was so much talk, uh, maybe not within the program, but outside the program. And I'm talking about the Aggies that. He wasn't going to be the starting quarterback. Jamil Showers, everybody thought that was the starting quarterback. I know in the documentary, Cliff Kingsbury said, oh, no, it was Johnny. Um, and, and, of course, he would know. But outside of that, the insulated program, so many people didn't know that. And people didn't know who he was to start the year. But they sure knew by halfway through the season who he was. And I just would have liked to have seen more of that part of the story. because. The thing, the reason you're making the documentary is to show the, again the fall uh, of this guy and, and how his personal life unraveled and led to uh, really his, his career coming to a premature end. But we were all interested in that because he was such a spectacular player. So I would have just liked to see more examples of how spectacular he was. Yeah, I have to say that I really think that they played into the mystique or the character of who Johnny is or, or the this portrayal that, that Johnny was, right? And I think that there's probably a different experience for fans, people that, that cover and, and watch sports, uh, more particularly, or that watch Aggie football. You know, I think that on the outside looking in, that's probably a different experience. And I'm so glad that you brought up the Florida game because I think that that after that game, they interviewed, I forget who it was, but I, mean, I think it was one of the linebackers. It was Sam Montgomery. Sam Montgomery. Yeah. Was he Was he the defensive defensive lineman? Yeah, he was LSU. Yeah, oh. Was it LSU? Oh, yeah. now, now, that was later in the year because they, I guarantee you, at, at, at that time, Sam Montgomery didn't know who Johnny Mandel was. And remember this, um, and I believe, I truly believe Texas A&M would have won a national championship if not for a hurricane that was You might recall that uh, that they were supposed to open the season against Louisiana Tech, but there was a hurricane warning, and you know, it, it, it didn't hit Louisiana. In fact, that, that Saturday in Shreveport where the game was going to be played, the weather was clear. It was perfect. But Louisiana Tech, uh, 
uh, postpone the game to about the sixth or seventh week of the season. And so Johnny Manziel's very first game was an SEC game against a Florida team that was really good that year. And uh, there were opportunities to score that he missed that I believe, and I think Cliff Kingsbury has told us later that he believes that he would have seen had he had a had he had a, just one game under his belt. Uh, and that's why after that Florida game, you came away saying, yeah, look, I know another game got away from him in the second half, but this is different. That guy has got something that most people don't have. And, you know, let's see where it goes. And, you know, it went all the way to New York City. Yeah, speaking of which, I, you know, sharing with our audience, I, I know that you are a Heisman voter, too, or at least at that point in time, you, you had a Heisman vote. Yeah. Um, what's that experience like? Can you share with us, and particularly that year, the surrounding all of it? You talked about earlier that he was already in the conversation and how the document or the documentary portrays that he was really on the Heisman radar after the Alabama game, but that's really not true. Can you talk to a little bit about like what the board looks like, the voting process and what it looked like that year, the, that Johnny won yeah. Heisman? Yeah. It's, it's, there's about a thousand guys uh, across the country. The, the Heisman uh, separates the, the Heisman trust separates the uh, country into six regions. Uh, and you have a regional chairman in each region, and his job, his task is to get the, uh, they may say, hey, we need 200 voters in your region. Uh, and so his task is to, to, to find 200 qualified voters, and, you know, they have, they have qualifications, you know, covering college football to a certain degree. They don't want somebody that just Joe Blow off the street, you know, even though Joe Blow off the street might know. Uh, more about it than a lot of high trophy guys voters do because maybe not everybody put uh, enough emphasis or enough effort into coming up with it. So um, I had been asked if I would be interested in doing it back in 1994, uh, and I've been doing it ever since. And it was interesting. Uh, I knew after the after the SMU game, I thought, man, this guy's got something really special. I saw it against Florida. I, I saw it again. Uh, you know, I just had a feeling that this guy's different. Well, I remember being up in the uh, press box after the game against Arkansas when he played great. Uh, he set some kind of past Peyton Manning on some kind of record. I can't even remember what it was. Uh, no, it was Archie. It was Archie that he passed on some kind of record. I can't remember what it was. Uh, and, and later, he in another game later, he that's another record of Archie Manning's. I remember thinking, at this rate, I remember writing at this rate, he'll he'll father three sons that that win Super Bowl uh, as quarterback. He's doing so much better than Archie. So, um, but I remember I was up in the press box. And I was talking to Burton Bowles, columnist from the Austin American State. I said, "This is the fourth game of the year." And I said, "John, this guy's a Heisman candidate now." And I remember Burton saying, now, "Come on, now you still got Le'Veon Bell and uh, who is." Michigan State. I, I can't even remember the other two games, uh, other two guys he mentioned. And I'm saying, Kirk, I'm telling this guy to be a contender right now. And he just kept getting better and better. And I mentioned that uh, Ole Miss game that they pulled that one out when there was no business winning. And I think at that point, uh, he was getting people's attention because not only was he playing so well, 
and, and you know, he was a highlight guy. So you, you couldn't watch ESPN on Saturday night without seeing Johnny Manziel and going, oh, my God, what did he do now? But at the same time, you know, Geno Smith from West Virginia in, uh, entered the season as the Heisman favorite. He fell off right away. Uh, you know, they, they were looking for other guys. They weren't really strong contenders at the time. I guess Colin Klein from Kansas State, uh, who really was not having, he was having a really good year, but it wasn't that spectacular, uh, was, uh, was finally emerging as a, as a contender. You know, it had gotten down to Manti Tao at Notre Dame as a, a contender. And he, if you looked at his numbers, they, they really weren't that spectacular. Now he was, getting more interceptions than linebackers typically do. And Notre Dame was having a good year. But, you know, for him, it was more based on he played at Notre Dame. Um, But each week it went by, it was clear that this guy was the best player and most outstanding player in college football. He just needed something to happen. Uh, he just needed one more game to distinguish himself and remove all doubt because there was a lot of guys that didn't want to vote for him just because he was a redshirt freshman at that time. No redshirt freshman wanted, and it was just uh, it was kind of like each week he was convincing more and more people that he was he was the most outstanding player in college football, which is what the Heisman Trophy is supposed to go to. Uh, and I think what happened was that. Uh, that performance that they talked about against Alabama probably had 90% of the country finally believing. And then when Colin Klein was not good in a, in an upset loss of state, late year, that just, that was the, that shut the door. That was the one that said, okay, uh, it's, it's a slam dunk here because even the people that didn't want to vote for him because he's a freshman could not justify not voting for it. But I, I think, yeah, the, the Alabama game, uh, I think it converted a lot of people, but I think week by week he was converting more. And, you know, then it was Sam Montgomery from LSU after playing him. Uh, it was like a week or so after playing him. That's when he said, I started football, give it uh, which is probably the smartest thing I've ever heard from an LSU what? player. <laughs> yeah, not not too much. Uh, well, oh, I'm, I'm I'm joking. Oh, I'm gonna have five dollars. <laughs> I'm gonna withhold because I know that you've got uh, one of your halflings there in at, at LSU. So, <laughs> yeah. yes, my son goes to LSU, and we have these kind of uh, verbal jousts on a pretty consistent basis. Love it. That's got to be good stuff. Well, I- I'm glad that you kind of you. You talked about a lot of his weekly play because I I feel like as a witness to this, as you know, everybody else as an Aggie fan or you know just really in tune to the the season of that year. You know, every every time he touched the field, Johnny was very electric, and you know there was something you could take away from each game where you're like, man, this guy is is next level. So, you know, my next question is, uh, how do you think Johnny Manziel's you know college playing style and persona compared to the current landscape of college football and the athletes that it produces. Oh, you know, um, yeah, you know, Johnny's kind of a once in a lifetime type of guy. Uh, look, there's been fast guys, Lamar Jackson, right? 
a few years later, Lamar Jackson, fast guy, and won the Heisman Trophy, and uh, it was a big, strong arm guy. I don't think I don't think he was as accurate a passer, and he sure wasn't doing it on a weekly basis in the SEC like Johnny was. Um, you know, uh, the uh, Kyler Murray, I thought was very similar to to, to Johnny. I think uh, I always said that you know because he's as we all know, unfortunately, started the career at A&M, but didn't finish it there. And I remember thinking, you know, Johnny's a once-in-a-lifetime player if he lives to be five years old, because five years later, here comes Tyler Murray. But I don't even think Tyler Murray, in that one season that he played at home on the Heisman, uh, again, you know, it's not about just being fast and running. It was the way that Johnny Manziel did it. You know, he would, so many times, he'd look like, uh, it looked like he was a, he was caged that you were going to get him. Everybody remembers the oh my gracious, how about that, that touchdown pass against Alabama when Brent Musburger said no, they got him, no, they didn't. And really, this this Houdini like quality that so many times he just looked like uh, he was in trouble only to escape. I mentioned the the near safety against Ole Miss, and he got the ball out of the end zone by inches, and then. You're like, okay, they're dead. Well, okay, I'm going to throw 30 yards now, and now I'm going to throw 40 uh, or 20 yards, and now I'm going to run it 40 yards for a touchdown. You know, it was, uh, nobody does it like that. I, uh, and not in the same fashion. Uh, it, you know, it's like you're on the verge of a crash that never came because he always had a way to. You know, the, to, to 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 make that play that you think is is going to be this disaster, but it wasn't. Because, and and it was such it was it was such a craziness to his game that you remember it had big statement upset saying, "Hey, is this what we want for college football?" You know, he 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 changed his whole offense because he was frustrated that you couldn't cage Johnny Manziel. No, you're right, and and that kind of leads me to to something else. That do you see the uh, you know some sort of um, trend here? Whenever a quarterback with legs ends up winning the Heisman, usually the second the the season next to that, they're really like, hey, you need to focus on passing more because in the NFL you're not going to be able to run all over everybody. Well, I think that's changing. I think that you know I go back to uh, let's go back to Vince Young when he was at Texas. They were yeah you. You're at A and M, Aggie or not, you know you can acknowledge how great Vince Young was. And uh, he goes to the NFL, and his coach didn't like him because his coach didn't want, you know, wanted you to didn't want you to run and stuff like that. Well, I think now he was ahead of his time because if a guy like that has a chance, now you have coaches say, "Yeah, this is what makes him special. Let him run." Uh, you know, let uh, let Lamar Jackson run. Let Kyler Murray run. Uh, Josh Allen, yeah, he he run. And it, it, the NFL for years, 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 yeah, he can run, but and you can't win unless you're in the pocket. Well, I've watched the Super Bowl last year, and I saw two teams with quarterbacks that are very mobile. And, uh, in fact, uh, shoot, the kid from Channel View, uh, I'm having a senior moment. Uh, Hurt, Jalen Hurt. Uh, he, you know, he, he, you know, he passes well, but what makes him dangerous is his ability to run. So I think actually 
the NFL has finally come around to embracing the running quarterback and isn't uh, isn't trying to force him to stay in the pocket. I don't want to take a guy who's uh, this gifted athlete that can really do things with his legs and take that away from him and try to make him into a pocket quarterback. I think more and more uh, NFL coaches are realizing, hey, the, the greatest weapon you have is a quarterback that can take a play that's breaking down and take off. Remember in the Super Bowl, Patrick Mahomes uh, late in the game had a run for about 30 yards set up the game-winning touchdown or the game-winning score. You have that if you're going to say, hey, no, you've got to stay in the pocket. So, no, I think that more coaches have braced that. And I think because of that, Johnny Manziel could have been a very successful NFL quarterback I'd have to agree with you there, you know, being able to watch it on and just kind of un, unfolding in front of you a little over a decade ago, you know, in, in watching the documentary, just kind of reliving some of those moments. It, it is sad. But on the other hand, I think that there have been some good outcomes that have come from Johnny's time here at A&M. And that may not be so apparent to everybody that knew and was covering Aggie sports uh, pre-Johnny, pre-SEC, and obviously they see it now because of multiple things, and Johnny maybe being one of them. What is what has his impact been on Texas A&M football, the program itself, and even sports for the institution itself? Well, you know, first of all, you look at, at Kyle Field, and he was not alone, but let's be clear, he was the forerunner, and uh, the reason that A&M was so excited, I'm talking about the A&M population was so excited about that 2012 season, and then was willing to uh, donate, what, $450 million, half a billion dollars, for the renovation of Kyle Field. You know, uh, that all comes from that magical season with Johnny Manziel as a magician and all the things that have come since. And I, you still, to this day, hear people when they reference A&M, but, you know, whatever the quarterback situation is, wherever the quarterback eventually, there's a comparison to Johnny Manziel. I hear all the time, uh, uh, Connor Wigman, the starter, Connor Wigman, he could be the best quarterback at Texas A&M since Johnny Manziel. Everything since Johnny Manziel. But uh, I think what Johnny did was he captured the imagination and showed you the world what Texas A&M can be. Uh, and Aggies embraced that, and they've invested into that image, that dream that Johnny Manziel Created, and that's why that's where it all started. That's why AM has one of the best, not the best, uh, stadiums in the country. That's why they have uh, elite facilities, uh, because people saw that and were saying, Hey, we like this and we want to invest in it. But it all started the foundation of that passion. The passion's already there, but the foundation of this, of this, uh, new passion for lack of better word, started with Johnny Manziel. I used to say that A&M 
as a program, as a football program, wanted to play at the hundred dollar tables, but was only willing to bring a hundred dollar bill. You know, you can't be a big time player if you're going to be if you're not going to invest in. And and Johnny Manziel was the fuse. He lit the fuse that that just made that that A and M passion explode and made people willing to fully invest uh, in this A and M football program and try to bring it to the level uh, that they you know wanted that they've always dreamed of, of getting to and they got they they saw they didn't get to that full promised land with Johnny but but they were like Moses they got so close they could see it and they and Johnny made them want it even more be willing to invest to get it. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. You know, I, I believe they, you know, there's been some talk about it. It's like whenever the, uh, the renovation of Kyle Field, they said, uh, you know, it's the house that Johnny built. That's a direct uh, reflection of kind of what his seasons were like and, and what he brought to the program. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, and then we really appreciate you taking the time to put together this interview just being able to speak about that magical year 2012 for Texas A&M and, and football. Thanks for joining us in the bakery and on the show. We hope that you'll join us maybe in the future. Well, I probably spoke about as gracefully as somebody from White Oak, Texas can. Uh, but that said, uh, I enjoyed it. I always, I'm always willing to, uh, to jump in and talk A&M football or A&M sports with you guys. Uh, there's never a bad time to talk about Texas A&M. Well, dudes, that's it for our show this week. We got a special shout out to our expert, Olin Buchanan, Heisman voter and sports writer for stopping by in the bakery for rehashing Johnny Football's Rise and Fall and to also talk about his new documentary, Johnny Football Untold. You can find more about Olin Buchanan on Twitter at Olin Buchanan. As always, you can check out all of our content on our link tree at Donuts With Dudes. Dudes, you can always request a shout out or comment on today's show by following the link in our show notes or emailing us info at donutswithdudes.com. And dudes, remember, our mission is to make men better and smarter each week. So if you get a chance, share our show with some friends. And until next week, take care of yourself and we'll see you in the bakery for the next batch of our fresh hot topics.